Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, Discipleship Pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. In my church group in, um, in uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts, at the age of about 16 or 17, I had made a deal with my mom and dad. I was very, very close to my mom and dad. I'm a, a real mama's boy and uh, got along with them my whole life, hardly even rough periods. And they went to the Congregationless Church, the Church of the Covered Dish Supper in uh, Greenfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts is an old enough state that you could not charter a town without having a congregationalist church. And this was the first one in our town. I mean, from back 200 years ago. And um, I uh, made a deal with my mom and dad that I wouldn't have to go to church services uh, Sunday morning if I went to youth group Sunday night. So we had a uh, pastor, that minister uh, at that that, um, church that was... Uh, fairly hip, you know. He's trying to deal with the, with the children, play a Jim Morrison song once in a while, you know, play the Beatles, uh, far out. And uh, he sincerely uh, wanted us to uh, to do some inquiry into uh, theological questions. And I took it very seriously. I may have been the only one in the youth group that did take it seriously. And I read the Bible cover to cover. And I think that anyone who is thinking about maybe being an atheist, uh, if you read the Bible or the Koran or the Torah uh, cover to cover, I believe you will emerge from that as an atheist. Uh, I mean, you can read The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. You can read uh, God is Not Great by Hitchens. But the Bible itself will turn you atheist faster than anything. Big words, strong words. I think I'm going to quit. I'm leaving today. That's how we... <laughs> Some of you might have recognized the face. Penn Gillette is one half of a internationally famous magic group called Penn and Teller. Uh, he is a witty and charismatic guy. He's the kind of guy that just kind of draws you in when he starts to speak. You want to hear what he has to say. You certainly want to see what he does because their shows are quite amazing if you've ever seen some of the stuff that they do. In this particular case, as it draws you in, it really, really catches you off guard um, because those are some pretty strong words about um, basically a person's journey away from God because, he said, he read the Bible. In fact, his words were, the Bible itself will turn you into an atheist, somebody who doesn't believe in God, faster than anything. Now, 
Today, my goal is not to talk about the merits or demerits of atheism. In fact, I feel that that's really not a, a whole truth right there. It, you know, simply rejecting the God of the Bible or the God of, uh, of Islam, you mentioned their holy book, the Quran, simply rejecting a few views like that doesn't automatically, by default, make you an atheist. I mean, there's other things maybe you could consider, but that's really not the point of today's message. The point, really, of our discussion is his point beneath that point, which is simply this. This is what he was saying. The God of the Bible isn't worth believing in. The God of the Bible isn't worth believing in for the reasons that he stated. If you just read the Old Testament, if you read the Bible, that is the conclusion you will come to. And you know something, I'll be honest with you, as a person who it was in my own journey from skepticism to faith and, and as a follower of Jesus Christ, I struggled with a lot of the same questions that he raises. And we're going to talk about those questions that, that he raised in just a minute. I struggled with the same issue. This issue that if you read the Bible, um, is this really a God who, who can't be trusted? Is this a, a God who's really no good when you see some of the stuff that, that's reported in there? See, people like Penn and others that, that have kind of followed this path, this is an increasingly popular thing today where they have kind of woken up, they believe, to, to what the God of the Bible is really like. They've opened their eyes beyond some people that you haven't yet, and they've seen what he's really like. This is a no good God, a God that you can't trust. He's, he's actually more like the God that I heard one time in, in a story of a man who went, he was in the Amazon, kind of plowing through the jungle off on his own, very remote, and all of a sudden he comes across a local group there. There's a group of people there with, a, with the leader of the tribe right in front of them, and these people are heavily armed. You know, bows and arrows, everything, they're all surrounding him, and they're wondering what this guy is doing there because he's in their territory, and they don't know who he is. So they're all standing there with these mean looks on their face. He can't speak their language, and so as he's standing there, he just realizes and says kind of inside his own thoughts, he says, man, I'm dead. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the clouds kind of part, and he hears a voice come from heaven. My son, you are not dead. I want you to look at your feet and at your right foot. You will see a medium-sized stone. The man looks down and lo and behold, there's a stone laying right there. And he says, okay, God, he says in his head, I see the stone. What do I do now? And he hears the voice. I want you to pick up that stone and I want you to toss it towards the man in front of you. He's the leader of the group. So he picks up the stone, he tosses it to the man and, and the tribe leader who wasn't really paying attention or wondering what he's doing gets hit right in the forehead with the stone. Looks at the guy, his eyes get kind of big, and the guy's waiting for the next revelation, you know, and then he hears the voice from heaven that says, okay, now you're dead. <laughs> is, is that what the God of the Bible is really like? If we open our eyes, as we just heard, take the blinders off, read what we see, do we really see a sadistic being there that we just can't trust? You know, he went on to even say, and, and if, let me use a little bit stronger words from somebody else. He said, if you could read books like The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins himself is a prominent scientist today, but also more so just somebody who has rejected faith in God, unlike others who haven't. But in his view, he, he states something about God in the book that Penn referenced, his book, The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. This is how he describes the God of the Bible. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. To him, the Bible is a work of fiction. That's his view. He's, he's jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Say that five times in a row. 
What do you really think, Richard? I mean, this is, this is his view of what he believes, who he believes God is, if you just read the Bible. And in a sense, what Richard Dawkins is saying is God is a moral monster. He's a monster when you really look at him for what he is. Is he right? Is that what God is like? I struggled with this when I read certain things. And I would recommend, by the way, a book by the same name as what I've titled this, this message, Is God a Moral Monster? There's a book by Paul Copan, who I thought did a fantastic job on it. I'd highly recommend that, among other reads. But as I was weighing this and wrestling this, I had those same kind of questions. Is, 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 is God a moral monster? Or is it maybe that those who come to that conclusion might be doing what somebody made an accusation of a certain teacher some years ago in a movie called The Breakfast Club. Some of you might remember that. You're, yeah, I'm dating myself. I get it. But he, uh, this one student and a number of other students in, in the movie who aren't understood, they're just misunderstood by this teacher, he writes this teacher a letter and he says to him, you see us as you want to see us. You see us as you want to see us. Is it, is it possible that Certain people are just seeing God as they want to see him or as they think they see him, but not as he really is. Now, let me share with you, because we're going to spend the balance of the time, on three main things that in that video, had we kept watching it, Penn Jillette brings up three main issues that seems to show God is a God not worth believing in. And these are the three issues that he lays out. And I'll use his words. In that video, he goes on to say, for, for instance, if you read in the Bible about the celebration of slavery, think about that, the celebration of slavery, does God support slavery? He goes on to say, or when you read about or hear about in the Bible, Lot's daughter being beaten and raped and the Lord being okay with that. Think about that. He's raising an issue about the severe devaluing and mistreatment of women. Or he goes on to say, or in the Ten Commandments, when you read thou shalt not kill and you realize it means only your own group. No hint that it means humanity in general. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, when God said thou shalt not kill in the Ten Commandments, he was saying that's just for your group of people. That's just for your tribe. But outside of that, feel free to just kill wantonly. Do whatever you need to do if it's going to advance something for you. That's what he saw. And so, in other words, it's this idea that some have seen that God champions this idea of racial genocide. You know, when you look at the, in the scripture of the Israelites going after this group called the Canaanites, and you wonder, is that what's going on here? Is God just in support of racial genocide, just picking a particular group based on their ethnicity or based on their, and just, just taking them out? Is that really what's happening? These are the issues that, that he raised, and I'll be honest with you, maybe you could be honest with me. That if the biblical God stands for any or all of those things, support of slavery, mistreatment and devaluation of women, racial genocide, if he supports any or all of those things, then wouldn't you say maybe it is true that we've got the wrong God? Maybe we shouldn't believe in him. Is that who the God of Scripture is? Let's take a look at these one at a time. Does God support slavery? Does he celebrate slavery? As Penn would have said in that video. How many people in here ever saw the movie Amistad? Ever see that movie? It's been a while. Probably it's been falling away into our memory now. But I would encourage you, ever get a chance, watch that movie. It's not for the faint of heart. 
But I'll tell you what it will do. It'll wake you up to the horrors of slavery in the 17th and 18th century Americas and 19th century Americas as that came into our culture. It was a horrendous, disgusting thing. And you see how people suffered under that, the gross injustice that was done. And so the idea that we get in our mind here is that Penn believes that God is in favor of that. Yet it, it's difficult, though. You wonder, if that is the case, and people who have followed God did believe that that's true, then how do you end up with people like William Wilberforce? Some of you may know his name, but he was somebody in, in England that was a part of the parliament and government there that a couple hundred years ago helped to basically abolish the slave trade in England. He was a Christian, and he helped abolish it. He fought. How do you get somebody like that if the Bible is just cut and dry? God says he's in support of that kind of thing. That's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. Yeah. In order to understand this, I think we need to get a wider view. We have to look beyond just the, the knee-jerk talking points, and we have to say, what does the Bible really tell us? What does Scripture really tell us? What is God really communicating in this letter to us that we call Scripture? And in order to do that, we have to have a couple of principles that are responsible. One of those would be this. And try to remember this one, because this is important when you're reading the Bible. One particular principle is there is God's prescribed will, and then there is God's permissive will. And you've got to make a distinction between these. God's prescribed will versus his permissive will. Now think about, if you go to the doctor, you're not feeling well. He diagnoses you with an illness. Then he gives you some pills. He says, take two of these, call me in the morning. If you don't, you will not be well. So based on my authority, my experience as a doctor, I'm telling you, take these. Right? He's directing you to do it. What do we call that that he gives you? A prescription. He has prescribed to you what to do. Do this, you will be well. That's more directive. It comes from authority and experience. It's what he wills. He wants you to do this. That's very different, though, than if you come into his office and he finds out that you've been choosing lately to really stock up on the Big Macs and fries, you know? You've been going to McDonald's three, three times a day, eating fast food, and you're not looking very healthy. That's what you've chosen to do. He's not in favor of that. He thinks that's bad for your health, but he doesn't tell you to stop. Instead, he says something like this, you know, you really should think about diet and exercise. Because if you keep eating this way, it's going to go really bad for you. If you do that, fine. I'll give you some guidelines, some ways you can improve. Here's a list of vegetables you can introduce. Here's some exercises you can do. I'd encourage you to do this. But if you continue that path eating three times a day, nothing, I'm not going to stop you. But it's not going to be good for you, and it's not going to be good for those that rely on you. Because if you get unhealthy and you show up here with heart disease, it's going to leave a lot of people high and dry. That is his permissive will. The doctor is realizing what you're choosing. He realizes it's not good. He really doesn't want it. It's not a good path for you to go, but he permits it. He's not going to tell you not to do it, but he tries to give you some guidelines and some ways in which to shape that, minimize that damage in your life and in others, and start to change that trajectory. Prescribed will, permissive will. They're very different. And God has prescribed and permissive will in Scripture. You see it all over. In fact, I'll give you one of the largest examples of this, that if you call yourself a follower of God, you've experienced this at some point. You recognize this. When human beings fell into sin and walked away from God and broke off that eternal relationship he meant for us all to have, and that's affected us all, that falling into sin is what? An example of God's permissive will. 
He permitted that. He permitted us to do that, right? He didn't want it. He has a better way, but he allowed it to happen. But if we look at God's prescribed will, something that he directed, that he did want, it's what we would call what Jesus did on the cross, died for us, rose from the dead in order to do what? He gave us salvation, forgiveness, eternal life. That was something God prescribed to do. So sin was something he allowed, though he didn't want it. But salvation was something he prescribed because he wanted it. And he did it for you and for me. And God has often done this. He, he even gave instructions at times for managing difficult situations in a fallen world. Things he permitted, but had to give some rules to help guide us away from and shape. An example of that is in the Gospels, when Jesus is approached by some people on an issue about marriage. And this is not a blanket statement on this issue, because there are many uh, conditions and things that have to come in in each of our individual lives. But in this particular case, they came to him, and they were talking about marriage and divorce. And they said, the, 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 the religious leaders there asked him, can I just kind of get rid of my wife for any reason? I mean, is, can I do that? And he's like, no, you, you can't do that. Can't, you can't do that. You're married. You can't walk away from that. And then they asked him, well, then why did Moses give us a law that guided and showed us how to have a divorce? And, and his response is very telling. He said, look, from, you know, because of people's sin, because of our fallenness, because we fail one another, because we get ourselves into complicated entanglements that we often don't know how to get out of, because of all of that, God gave some instructions on how to minimize damage, guide that process, try to get people out of that with something left of themselves, is basically what he said. He gave a writing of how to manage that because of your struggles, fallenness, hardness of heart, sin. He says, but from the beginning it wasn't so. That's not how God wanted it. Do you see what he's saying? God permitted this and even showed us how to guide it, he was saying, but that's not what he prescribed. What he prescribed is a, is a better ideal. So we see this all over Scripture. So now what about this issue of slavery? Does, does God support the idea? Well, first we need to understand what that word means. In Scripture, we find, and you'll see some of these bullet points here. First of all, the Israelites were commanded, God's people were commanded, to lend freely to poor people. God's goal, he even says, was to eradicate the poor and any need for what we would call indentured servitude. I'm going to define that. So God's first goal, though, was to try to eliminate any need for somebody who couldn't provide for themselves and therefore had to be indentured to serve another. But if that happened, he gave a pattern. And his pattern is what we would call, not slavery per se, but indentured servitude. It's this pattern. It's the pattern in Leviticus that, that shows us that this was meant to be voluntary. God wanted somebody to choose this because they, they didn't know any other way to go, and so they were stepping into this. He gave limitations on that, including treating them humanely. This was, again, not his ideal but what he would permit if, when these situations happened. It goes on beyond that. And this is, by the way, you can already tell, very different than what we might think of when we hear that word and we think of the Americas a century ago. This didn't involve some of those practices, and you'll see why. God goes on to say that if any person in an indentured servitude situation, if they were seriously injured, they had to be set free. And the one who injured them risked Punishment. They would be punished for that. And even under the eye for an eye policy, if, if they hurt that person severely or killed them, they could risk punishment of death for doing so. 
Anyone, God said in Exodus, anyone who kidnaps someone else to sell them, think Amistad. That's exactly what he's talking about. If you kidnap some, someone with the purpose of selling them to another nation in slavery, you're to be put to death. He condemned that horrific, horrendous practice. He goes on to say anyone who escaped from another nation, a foreign nation, where the slavery was horrible, where it was very parallel to what we might remember in our nation's history. And if anyone who escaped from that situation and came to the Israelites, God told them what? Did he tell them send them back so they can be punished and, and, and put back in chain? No. He said, don't turn them back over. Keep them there. Give them a good life. This was radically different than the surrounding cultures. The surrounding nations, if you caught somebody who escaped from a foreign nation, send them back and let them deal with them harshly. Very different here. But even more than all of that was the spiritual command that God gave them that guides this whole thing concerning foreigners or others that would come in and find themselves in this situation where they had to be provided for through this means. And this is what he said in Deuteronomy 10. He said, you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourself, remember, were foreigners in Egypt. He reminded them of their past. And he said, you are not to be that way, the way you were in Egypt. Instead, you were to love the foreigners among you. And he goes on to say, when a foreigner resides among you in your land, don't mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself. For you were foreigners in Egypt. I'm the Lord, your God. Treat them like they were you. A very different standard than what we might think of. If you, in fact, want to understand the pattern more of how God would have the Israelites, his people in that nation, treat others who are not of their birth, were foreign-born, just think of Ruth and the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. Think of that. Ruth was a Moabite. She was not an Israelite. She was a foreigner. But you see the relationship between them, and that is the way that God wanted a relationship between Israelites and the others. And so what we have here is really a picture of God in a culture, what we would call the ancient Near East culture, in a fallen world that was a mess, and God often is trying to help us figure out how to take these messy tensions and put them together. And in that kind of a culture, where severe abuse and mistreatment was done, he called out a people in which people were be treated humanely, provided for, loved as themselves, never abused, protected. This is the way in which he set that narrative. But it wasn't his ideal. He permitted it, like we talked about with the other issue, because he knew he had to manage a situation like this in a broken world. But that's not what he wanted. If you want to see what his ideal is, you see that through this directional arrow of Scripture. And when you look through Scripture, you see him not only condemning or softening and minimizing it here, but ultimately condemning any thought of slavery. And you see that in the New Testament when the Romans were enslaving people in harsher ways. And what you see is in the midst of that, someone like the Apostle Paul calling a man like Onesimus, who was a slave, instead calling him my son in the faith. Treat him like you would me, he says. Treat him as one of your own. He gives him dignity. He gives him equal standing in the body of believers. And God goes even so far in First Timothy as to say that slave traders are condemned along with murderers and people like this. This is God's directional arrow on the issue. And so we get a very different picture that emerges than somebody who just says, when you see God celebrating slavery. That is not the picture of the God who we see working and trying to help a broken and fallen world. But what about the 
devaluation and mistreatment of women. Do we see that in Scripture? Again, Penn said, when you hear about Lot's daughter, who was, he said, beaten and and raped and the Lord being okay with that. Well, first of all, I find it interesting because that, that actually never happened to Lot's daughter. And I do find it funny that sometimes when people want to critique faith, they, they, they don't seem to have really dug in. Now, I don't know. I don't want to blame Penn. He's a pretty smart guy. Maybe he just confused some wires when he was talking about it. But I would challenge you. If, if, if you're critical or, you, or you're not sure of, of the God that, 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 that the Bible talks about and you want to explore into that, be careful to do your homework. Think it through carefully. Don't just jump to a conclusion. Certainly at least be familiar with the stories. In this particular case, that never happened to Lot's daughters. Lot did offer his daughters to an angry mob in a way that was horrible, but that's on Lot. Lot was a sinful, fallen person. And I'll tell you one thing, the Bible just describes sinful, fallen humanity. We're going to see that in a second. Because description is not prescription. You see that principle up there? You've got to realize this is another principle to live by. When the Bible describes something, it doesn't mean that it's prescribing something. God is honest about sinful, fallen humanity. And he gives us some of the worst stuff we've done. And Lot, in that moment, was going to do that. But in that particular case, angels showed up and actually rescued him and his daughters. The situation that Penn is thinking about comes from a different place in Scripture. He was confusing the two. And we're going to look at that in a moment. But, but first, let's look at this principle for a minute. Without this, we would really go off. Description is not prescription. If I read to you from the Encyclopedia Britannica a description of the Holocaust, anybody remember the Holocaust? Let's never forget it because we never want to see it repeated. World War II, and there's been other horrible things like that through time, but in World War II, many people killed. Encyclopedia Britannica says this, Holocaust, comes from the Hebrew word, Shoah means catastrophe. The systematic state-sponsored killing of six million Jewish men, women, and children, and millions of others during World War II. The Nazis called this the final solution to the Jewish question, period. That's pretty stark. That's pretty unemotional. Well, of course, I'm just, I'm just reading something. Imagine how crazy it would be if I said, therefore, the people, the writers of Encyclopedia Britannica are in favor of this. That wouldn't be fair, right? Because they're describing something. They're describing what happened. They're not saying whether they're in favor of that or not. They just told us what happened. It doesn't mean they're in agreement with it. See, we need to just understand, sometimes the Bible, things are just described. If we take that and assume God's in agreement with it, we're going to go off base. Or if we take that description and we assume, therefore, that's what should happen all the time, we can really get off base. Listen to this kind of uh, explanation of this. This particular person says, A passage in the Bible is descriptive if it describes something that happened, while a passage is prescriptive if it describes what should happen. See the difference? Something that happened versus something that should happen. Simply put, you have to ask yourself, is it a description in the Bible or a command? And the difference is important because when a biblical passage is only describing something, but it's interpreted as prescribing something, that can really lead us astray and lead us off base. Think of the story of David and Goliath. Anybody know that story? Come on now, you got to read your Bibles out there. Anybody know the story? I'm seeing some kids back there raising their hand. Good, okay. For all you adults, let's get reading. <laughs> story of David and Goliath, right? We, see, we read the story and what's described. That, that David comes across this man who's, who's challenging all his people, threatening his people. He goes against them. They battle one-on-one. David sl- slings a stone at him, knocks him down, wins the battle. 
Okay, it's described. But imagine if we took that as a prescription and we said, therefore, every single time you find somebody on the street like Penn who doesn't believe in God or maybe is a little bit critical of him, sling a stone at him. I'll visit you in jail, okay? We'll get, we'll get a chance to pray. Of course not. That, that, we, we can't conclude that just because that is described in that moment in time, that's how everybody who follows God should act every time in every way. Because it wasn't prescribed, it's described to us. Or take another one. I'm not trying to pick on David, but how about the story of David with uh, Nabal and Abigail? Anybody remember that story? Get a few more. Everybody's raising their hands quicker this time. Yeah. David comes across a guy named Nabal. He's out traveling. He's hungry. His men are thirsty and hungry. He, he asks this guy if he'll send him some food. The guy sends a messenger back saying, who are you? I don't know who you are. Why should I listen to you? And insults him even more. David gets mad and says, strap on your swords, guys. We're going to pay Nabal a visit. And he's not going to like it. Okay? If you stopped reading the story right there of what's described, you would conclude that David maybe is doing the right thing, and maybe that's what we should do. Somebody insults you, strap on a sword. That's how you go deal with it. And again, I'll see you in jail. Okay? But if you keep reading, and this is another principle, by the way, put this alongside description is not prescription, put this one next to it. Context is critical. Context is critical. We have to keep reading. And we find out in this story that Abigail, Nabal's wife, actually shows up and meets David and graciously talks to him and says, look, my husband's a jerk sometimes, okay? He is. Any ladies got any witnesses? No, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands on that. <laughs> you know, he is sometimes. That's the way it is. But, you know, please don't do this, okay? I come out here. I'll give you some food. I'll help your guys out. And if you do this, it's not going to be good. You're going to be shamed. And you know what? David's response is to tell Abigail, thank God that he sent you to me because you have rescued me today. Basically from saying from making an absolute fool out of myself, destroying my name and worse. What I, what I would have done was, was wrong. So reading it, we start to realize what's really being described and how we should understand it. Context is so, is so critical. And so when, when Penn says, when you hear about you know, Lot's daughters. And let's take a look at, at this situation. Again, it wasn't Lot's daughters. What he's talking about is something that happens to a woman in the book of Judges. In order to understand this, let's remember description versus prescription and let's remember context. So the thing you see in the book of Judges first, if you read the whole book, I hope he did. Don't know if he did. Maybe not. Because what you see is the people are, con are descending into godlessness. They're moving away from God. You see this pattern in which the people come into the land. God wants to protect them, wants to be their king, wants to lead them into what's right. Instead, they reject him. They forget about him. They wander away from him. And then he kind of permits that. He leaves them to go their way. And what happens is enemies come in, start to take over. Then they begin to cry out to him. He comes in. He rescues them. He protects them. And the merry-go-round starts all over again. That's the book of Judges. And so this is constant path of them moving away from God and doing what is right and towards doing what is wrong. And then we get to chapter 19 in Judges, in which we see this man, again, maybe he took cues from his uh, friend many years before, Lot, and an angry mob shows up at his door and he offers... His woman there, the woman's with him, he offers her to this, this mob because he's afraid of them, and they do some horrible things. They, they, they beat her, and they do rape her, and they leave her for dead. And we get from the story that, in fact, she did die. Now, imagine if we stopped reading there, like the story with David and, and Abel. What would we conclude? Well, maybe God's okay with this, like Penn said. But is that really right? All we've had is a description of ugly humanity. 
So let's go on. What actually happens? What we find out after that moment is all the other groups within Israel, all the other tribes rise up against this one who did this and get angry. They throw a fit. They say this is horrible and they rise up to go deal with these people who, in the words of the scripture, because this woman had been murdered. They're totally against this. And they go there, and then what you end up with is these tribes going to this other group, the tribe of Benjamin, and what you end up with is a blood feud that's worse than any Hatfields and McCoys you've ever heard. It's horrible what happens there. Bloodshed and destruction among these families of tribes because of a murder. That's what we see. And then the whole story ends with, actually begins with a statement, has part of that statement in the middle, and then ends with the same statement at the end of this book. This statement, in those days, Israel had no king. Very telling statement. Because God was supposed to be their king to guide them into what was right. Now they have no king. Why? Everyone did what seemed right in their own eyes. They're not taking cues from God anymore. They're not taking cues in what's right anymore. They're doing what they want to do. And it's all going wrong. That's the story. That's the lesson. God is not in favor of what happened to this woman. He called it murder. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture is the abuse and mistreatment and rape of of a woman condoned. In fact, it is strongly condemned. Deuteronomy 22. If a man meets an engaged woman out in the country and he rapes her, then only the man must die. Do nothing to the young woman. The man must die. Do nothing to the young woman. She's committed no crime worthy of death. She's as innocent as a murder victim. If a man rapes a woman, he must die for it, for what he's done. And she's okay. She's innocent. Don't do anything to her. People get confused on this verse sometimes because a couple of verses later we get another case that's described. And sadly, some of the older translations translate the word in a way that it looks like it's describing another rape case. And it looks like God is trying to punish both the people involved. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But the truth is the word that's used in that verse is different than this one. This word here is a strong word. It means violate. It means rape. The word that's used a few verses later is the same word, if you're familiar with the story, that is used when Potiphar tries to seduce Joseph. So it's a word meaning to seduce someone. And so in that case, God says if one comes along and seduces a woman who's pledged to be married to another, and then they're discovered doing this, in other words, there's been a response, now it's a very different situation. And in fact, the rules that God gives to deal with that is doing what? It's preserving the integrity of marriage. It's preserving people against being seduced and drawn away. It's condemning those kind of actions of betrayal. But in this case... If somebody rapes a woman, he's to be killed. There's, 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 that is the legal standard that God gives to his people. Frankly, some of the dignity that God gives to that culture was a lot more than we give to each other today. Because we treat this stuff fast and loose like we can just throw it away. And God wants to preserve the honor and integrity of the people. Women had great dignity and value. They, they do to God in Scripture. Look at the scriptural arrow on this. Deborah was a leader of Israel. Miriam, Huldah, and Anna are all prophets in Israel to to God's people. Ruth, Rahab, Esther, these are all prominent figures. These ladies were prominent figures in God's plan. In fact, Ruth and Rahab are part of the lineage of God's Messiah. Jesus Christ looks to them, and that's pointed out in the New Testament so we don't miss it, that they are a part of his heritage and his ancestry, of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
Women and men were both disciples of Jesus. And women were the first ones he chose to witness his resurrection. Think about that. The Messiah comes back from the dead and tells this whole earth, you have an answer to your sin now. You have the promise of eternal life in me. And the first ones he gives that as a witness to is the women who had followed him. What an honor. And then male and female are listed as one in Christ. The scripture tells us they have the same spiritual standing, in other words, in God. This is light years, by the way, beyond the culture of the times when it came to how those cultures viewed women. Light years beyond it. This was God's view. And so it seems like maybe this was a a rush to judgment on Penn's part. But what about this final issue? Does God support racial genocide? You think of that word. You think of the Rwandan genocide in the 1990s when a million Rwandans were killed. You think of the Holocaust in which six million Jews and many others were killed just based on certain characteristics or ethnicities. It's, it's a horrible, disgusting thing. Did God really do that? Did he give commands to, 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 to just racially wipe out a whole people? This is a hard one. It's the hardest of the three. And the reason is, is because, frankly, we do see the Israelites going in and, and, and taking out the Canaanites. And we do see God prescribing this. It was his will that it be done. So what's going on here? Again, let's look at the whole picture. Let's keep our principles in mind. And let's see what really, what picture emerges. First, the Canaanites. This was a people that engaged in adultery, temple sexuality, bestiality, child sacrifice, many other things. But take that last one. Just take that alone. Child sacrifice. They sacrificed children to their gods. Their god Anath was known as one literally swimming in and engorged in human blood. Their god Moloch was one in which you would place a child on the burning fire and sacrifice that child to this god. This was the culture that God was dealing with. And to that, he told the Israelites, when I send you in, here's what you're to do. In Leviticus 18, all those detestable activities that we just saw are practiced by this people where I'm taking you, he said to the Israelites. And this is how the land has become defiled. They're defiling my world. The sin is destroying children and other things. It's gross immorality and evil. And so I'm taking you in there. And he says, but when you go there, don't defile the land and give it a reason to vomit you out as it's going to vomit those people out who live there now. Do you see what's going on here? God wasn't judging capriciously based on somebody's race or ethnicity or background. He was, he was dealing with sin and evil, gross immorality. And he was sending Israel in as an instrument of judgment. God has the right to do that, by the way. He can use whatever means he chooses. In fact, ironically, God did the same thing with Israel sometime later. When they gave themselves over to these same practices and they left God and they turned to gross immorality, he used the Assyrians and the Babylonians to other nations to judge Israel and vomit them out of the land in the same way. God isn't pro one group or another. He's anti-sin. And he's holy. But in the case of those who repented, God didn't judge. You see Rahab in the book of Joshua. Again, she became part of Jesus' lineage and she was delivered because she she didn't want to go that path of immorality. Or the city of Nineveh, when they repented, when Jonah preached to them, God spared them. God didn't want to do this. That wasn't his goal. 
Israel was to make an offer of peace before they did this. People always had the opportunity to choose peace. And we need to realize this too. God's command to judge of, the, of Israel to judge the Canaanites, or later on, the Babylonians and the Assyrians to judge Israel, those were specific to those times and those places. God was dealing with... Think about how weird it would be if we had a judge, somebody comes into the courtroom, they're found guilty of a serious crime, the judge delivers a penalty. It may even be the death penalty. Right? Imagine if we were to look at that and go, why? What a bloodthirsty, maniacal idiot. Because that's what he does to all people all the time. That's what he wants us to do. Where, why are we going there? This is a judge who's delivering a just judgment based on a crime in the right way. That's what we have going on here. And we should never take these. These are described, but they are not prescribed to all people at all times. This is not our approach. Many battles were defensive. The Israelites were attacked first. You see that. And then we really gets us to this final point, though, which is really the hardest point with this. And that is, why do we see at times when God's talking to them to go in and do this, he uses language like wipe out everything. Why do we see that? We need to understand that this is something that's called exaggeration rhetoric. Let me give you some examples of this. First of all, you see it in Scripture elsewhere. Remember when Jesus says, if your eye offends you, cut it out, gouge it out, throw it away? Does he mean that literally? Or is he using something strong language to say, get rid of it, stop doing that, take radical action to remove the sin or whatever that your eyes are drawing you into? That's what he means. When David says in the Psalms, I, I make my bed to swim in my tears, do you literally think you're going to see a queen-size or king-size bed doing the backstroke? I, I don't think so. What he's saying is, I am crying a lot. And let me tell you, from my standpoint, if I see a 2020 headlines in the paper in the sports section that the Lions utterly destroyed the New England Patriots, I'll be happy. Okay? <laughs> And I bet you, you will too. I don't think, don't hold your breath, but we'll, we never know. But, but I guarantee you, you're not going to look at that and think that the Lions physically killed every single patriot. What you're going to understand is they completely wiped out the influence and won the day. Well, what do we see in Scripture? When we see that even though we're told Joshua destroyed all the Canaanites in Joshua 10, the Canaanites still exist sometime later. So clearly he didn't destroy them all. We see that Saul wipes out the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15. And then David wipes out the Amalekites some chapters later. And yet, a few chapters after David, they're still around. So what does it mean? He didn't obviously wipe them literally all out. Or what about the commands in Joshua when, the, when they're told to, to wipe out all the people there? They were going into two military strongholds, Jericho and Ai, the ones that were the beachheads for the nation. They were dominated by soldiers in a garrison fort there. And that's what they were going in to deal with. Families like Rahab's were allowed to leave if that's what they chose. If they stayed to fight, it would be a different issue. But that is where they were going to deal, was dealing with that. This language, in other words, of destroy everything doesn't seem to carry the meaning of physically wipe out every person. Instead, what it seems to carry is the meaning of wipe out their influence influence from among you. You need to get rid of it because if you don't, it's going to lead you into the same evil that they have been led into. And if you don't, if that's not enough, look at the scripture here that hopefully makes the point. God says, when the Lord your God hands these nations over to you and you conquer them, here we go. You must completely destroy them. But then he says, don't let your daughters and sons marry their sons and daughters. Wait a minute. How could that happen if they're completely physically destroyed? 
That's not what he means. Don't let your sons and daughters marry their sons and daughters, for they'll lead your children away from me to worship other gods. They're gonna, you're going to turn to this evil. Then the anger of the Lord will burn against you, and he will quickly what? Destroy you. But the Israelites are still around. To this day, there are Israelites. So God did destroy them at one point and vomit them out of the land, but they're still around. God wanted to remove the evil. And that is the one thing that I have no other answer to. Because if in response to all of this and the deeper understanding of it, if somebody like Penn in that video were to say to me, but God still judged these people. He still brought a judgment against them. My only answer would be yes. God is holy. He's just. He will judge sin and evil. He still will judge it. And the message of grace even to the world today is that we have an answer to our sin and that is Jesus Christ and we can choose him today. But if we don't, the judgment of God is coming. But that's not what God wants to do. This issue really comes down, as I said in the beginning, of sometimes we see what we want to see. What do we see when we look at Scripture truly? Just a wrathful God who wants to destroy people, is that all we see? Or is there something more going on? A friend of mine this week was talking to me about this message and stated a pretty interesting way to view it. He said, I imagine a father who has to kick one of the children out of the house because that child is causing destruction and havoc in the house. So he kicks that child out of the house to protect the whole family. He said, if, if we were to read the letter of that father describing that, what would we see? Would we see a judgmental, self-absorbed, maniacal parent in the words of that letter? Or would we see the broken heart of a loving father? One who is watching the horizon for that prodigal child, hoping they would turn, hoping they would run to him, hoping that he could sweep them into his arms and restore him and welcome him or her home. Is that what we see? Well, let me tell you that that is the letter of this father, the father of Scripture. That is his letter. Isaiah 19, he writes this statement about the Egyptians who had enslaved his people, about the Assyrians who would conquer and destroy his people, and about his people. He writes, in that day, he says, he's looking forward to a hope. The same father that's had to judge these people before. He's looking forward to hope and he says, in that day, the Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. They'll worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third among them along with Egypt and Assyria. They'll all be a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them saying, blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, my handiwork, and Israel, my inheritance. God loves all people. He wants to unite them all. He wants to rescue them from themselves. He wants to rescue you and me from ourselves because the greatest expression of God's letter is Jesus. He's willing to run to a world that's lost and bring them home. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not die but have everlasting life. That's the letter of God to his world. If you have 
never heard that letter before. Perhaps you are somebody that has been influenced by this growing view of who God is. I'd encourage you, take a deeper look. Don't just see what they, they ask you to see. But see the heart of the Father. And know that He offers you a chance to turn from sin, the things that separate you from Him. Turn to Him and have an eternal relationship with Him. If you're somebody who's already responded to that, let me leave you with this final thought. And that is Colossians chapter 4. You see, when people ask this question, is God a moral monster? I really believe in large part they will answer that question by what they see in front of them. And so God tells us, live wisely among those who are not believers. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversations be gracious, be attractive, so that you'll have the right response for everybody. What are your words? What comes from your heart? Who do they see? Who do they see? Because sometimes they'll see what they want to see. And this is a world today where people see anger. And they see hatred. And they see even any sense of disagreement as a cause to label you a hater and a bigot. So what will they see in you that will change that? What will they hear from our lips? So that when they see us, perhaps they'll wonder as that man in that intro video pen, perhaps they'll be like him and start to ask questions as to whether they might be wrong. See, Penn, from what I know, is still an atheist. But there was a video, one time I think we saw it here a few years ago, in which he came across a Christian who challenged him on his views and asked him if he would reconsider who God was. And that man handed him a Bible. And Penn made a video about that. And what he said in that video is this man was so gracious, he was so kind, this Christian was so, so loving in the way he approached me, maybe I do need to rethink my view on who God is. What will they see? Because I believe that the question of the world, is God a moral monster, will largely and likely be answered by what they see in us. Father, we just ask you, Lord, today, in a world of shifting culture, as you've called us to be ambassadors of you, I pray, Lord, that we would carry your grace and your love and your mercy to this world. We wouldn't compromise on your holiness and your need to deal with the sin of this world and not just wink at it, but we pray, God, that ultimately in us, this world would see the letter of the Father, a heart of love and restoration. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.